Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. And we are back with our final sin in our series of seven deadly sins. I think it's fitting that it's sloth. Yes, we saved the best one. For, well, we saved one of them for last and got to it finally. Yeah, finally. Yeah. After we sat on the couch eating potato chips for months. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about sloth. Let's uh, let's talk about it in the context of our friend Dante. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about sloth is that but before you really get into it, it, it you initially think, ah, oh, sloth laziness, that's easy. But it's actually a little more uh, uneven than that. You know, it's like it depends on who's defining sloth exactly what it is. And you go back and you look at accounts of it in the medieval Christian church, mm-hmm. and you do see it in terms of this disinclination to use labor and to exert yourself mm-hmm. in a very, you know, physical means. But then you also have church doctors and saints like Thomas Aquinas who called it sadness in the face of spiritual good, which one has to achieve. So you see it also defines this kind of uh, spiritual or emotional apathy. Yeah, I saw it in the context of of a moral failing, a combination of alienation and tedium with a little self-contempt thrown in, and it afflicted jaded monks who had tired of the cloistered life. And so it was uh, a sin because they were actually turning away from their moral obligations and towards selfish pursuits. It was termed by the Discover Magazine's article, I Didn't Sin, It Was My Brain, as a monistic form of ennui. Well, in Dante's Inferno, there, uh, and I think we, we mentioned this already, there's no circle of sloth, per se. But uh, as we discussed in Wrath, we, we do wind up on the River Styx with good old Dante and Virgil as we're moving across this slimy, swampy, just horrible muck fest that is sticks, we see that there are bubbles rising up to the surface. Mm-hmm. They're rising up from the bottom, and that is where the sullen are. The river sticks has the sullen, and they have the wrathful. The wrathful are over there biting and punching and duping right. it out on the surface, and the sullen are submerged in the bottom of this horrible, slimy lake. They're down they're there. They're just pouting. Yeah, they're, they're pouting. They're gargling these mock prayers up through the waters. It's the idea that it's anger expressed in two ways here. With the wrathful, it's anger that's it's outward. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I hate everything. I'm going to punch everything in the face. And then here, it's anger that is inverted, that's, that pushes inward on the person, crushing them under the weight. It's passive-aggressive anger. Yeah. I'm actually going to read a quick bit from a translation of Dante's Inferno just to give you a little taste of the sullen and sticks here. My kind master said, Son, now behold the souls of those whom anger vanquished. And I would have you believe, too, as a certainty, that under the water are people who are sighing, making the water bubble at the surface, as your eye will tell you wherever it turns. Fixed in the mire, they say, We were gloomy in the sweet air, and the sun makes us glad, bearing within us the fumes of sullenness. Now we languish in the black slime. This hymn they gurgle in their throats, for they cannot fully form the words. So we wound about a large ark, of the filthy swamp between the dry bank and the wetness our eyes turned on those who swallow mud we came to the foot of a tower at the last and that's from the version of inferno that is edited and translated by robert m durling which uh, i highly recommend i think it's a really cool translation has a lot of interesting notes that really illuminate this fascinating text and if you travel into dante's purgatory it's a little less interesting Uh, there is a terrace the fourth terrace of purgatory and again, purgatory is, in Dante's Divine Comedy is this mountain that connects the earth to heaven. And if you're uh, you're not bad enough for hell, but you're not good enough for heaven, you're going to have to work off 
your sins and uh, polish yourself up before you can actually walk through the front door of heaven. So on the fourth level of purgatory, you work off all that sloth. And here, the slothful, they were slothful in life, and now they're showing great vigor, running around in circles on this terrace, shouting uh, various famous examples of slothful behavior and the opposite virtue, which Dante defines as decisive zeal. So in life, these people <laughs> really didn't care about anything, and they, they weren't really applying themselves. So to, to work it off, they're shouting and running around, and they're, they're screaming all these examples of, of horrible sloth, but also examples of what they should have been doing, mm-hmm. which is just getting really zealous about something important. So before they were gulping mud, and now they're just running around like maniacs. Yeah. Yeah. And real quickly, I'm going to head east for a second and just point out that in Buddhism, sloth or torpor is one of the five hindrances that interfere with meditation, along with sensual desire, ill will, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. And according to Samkhya, one of the six orthodox systems of Hindu philosophy, there are three primal qualities of matter. Okay, The highest one is something called sattva, which is uh, illumination, enlightened knowledge, and lightness. And then there's one called rajas, which is energy, passion, and expansiveness. And the third is tamas, or darkness. And this is obscurity, ignorance, and inertia. So in this idea, we see the idea of sloth as it relates to physical reality, but then that's also uh, sometimes applied to uh, our inner realities as well. Well, and I think that sloth is interesting because it's one of those, again, uh, sins that doesn't seem so bad. So you kind of have to wonder, well, why is it such a problem? In the church traditions, uh, especially, you see it defined as a capital sin, meaning that it's a, a sin that leads to other sins. So you start off as just being lazy and slothful. The next thing you know, you're being lustful or you're, you know, you're doing something worse. It's like a gateway sin, according to some of the commentators. Well, there's also this idea that sloth is a sin because it contributes to the individual's failure to achieve, achieve his or her future, her uh, true self-expression, right? Sin in this regard is really important because time is of the essence, right? Right. Uh, we are a time-limited creature here on this earth. We live, we die. And so the thought is that if you are engaging in sloth all the time, then you're wasting this precious gift or these moments in which you could, again, be achieving something that sort of transcends yourself. Right. Whether you're looking at your time on earth and your existence here as a gift from some sort of divine being or just an accident of evolution, there's no denying that there is a finite amount of time in which to achieve something. And if you put any value on achieving anything, then... At the end of the day, you've got to look at yourself and say, like, wow, what did I actually get done today? And if the answer is not much or nothing, then perhaps that is flawed. Oh, I was even thinking in the context of Lawrence Krauss, like we've talked about him and what he talks about in terms of uh, supernovas uh, dying Mm -hmm. and that material spewing forth, actually creating the earth and how, uh, you know, the nitrogen, carbon dioxide, all these different things that, um, you know, are actually in our own bodies are a result of the supernovas, you know, blasting into little bits and shards. And when you think about it that way, you're like, wow, I am sitting here living and breathing because of these incredible things that have happened in the universe. Yeah. That makes sloth feel really like, like pretty awful, actually, as a sin. Yeah, it's kind of, if you were looking at the timeline, someone's like, and then a star exploded and this matter traveled across the universe. And then for a little bit there, uh, it was embodied in this person who ate potato chips. But but what what fascinates me yeah. too about sloth is that that by some of these definitions it's not 
necessarily just that guy that's sitting on the couch eating potato chips and doing nothing. You could have that guy who's living a very active life, a very busy life. You know, he's running in the morning, then he goes to his banking job or whatever, and then he comes back more running, uh, you know, than socializing. But then at the end of the day, has he done anything emotionally or spiritually that isn't selfish, you know? Like it's that, yeah. I, I think we, a lot of us have that, that kind of realization in our lives at different points where we're like, we, we look at ourselves and we wonder, am I really contributing that much that is good to the world? Am I doing something that is, that is, that is worthwhile or am I just existing in the muck of my own, uh, yeah, well, here. and it's highly subjective because one man's sloth is another person's great productivity. Right. right? And, and, and some people are just going to have more empathy, more, more emotional attachment to various topics. So, you know, like one person's going to be like, wow, how could you spend your whole day and not think about the conditions on the other side of the world or, or think about, you know, people that have less and try to give back? If you're not thinking about that, then it's just, I mean, you have the blinders up to it. I mean, it's. Okay. So, um, not quite right now, but in a little bit, we are actually going to talk about why that may be. Uh, why some people are more aware of this and what sloth is for some people and not for others. But let's talk about what's going on in the old noggin. Yes, inside the human brain. What is the the science of sloth? Again, according to that Discover Magazine article I didn't send, it was my brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, or the DLPFC, has an unusual pattern of activation in both dementia and depression. So they see that its function is actually related to inhibiting impulses and sustaining attention, which is really important when it comes to motivation, right? Right. So for people who are experiencing depression or dementia, there is a bit of activation in that part that may suggest that this this part of the brain is actually um, a little bit weakened, I guess you could say, uh, for lack of a better word there. So as opposed to being this capital sin, this sort of weak point through which all the other problems surge, it's really more of a, a symptom of other problems in the brain. It's a question of sustaining attention mm-hmm. and feeling motivation, right? right? Because if you cannot sit down for five minutes and try to do something and mm-hmm. your brain wanders, Especially if you know you are experiencing depression, uh, or you do have dementia, obviously, uh, you know you're going to lead to some sort of possible lethargy, or just I don't know, walking around the room in circles, trying to lift your spirits, right? Mm-hmm. So conversely, activity in this area could actually help tamp down negative emotions. In some studies, depression lifted with stimulation of this part of the brain. And of course, then there's the aspect of boredom, right? How engaged can one be if there is nothing to be engaged with? Can you die from boredom? And can you die of it? Yes. And I, I think we've touched on this topic in the past. And we, we discussed how like isolation affects an individual. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, our brains are, are evolved and our, our brains function in a changing world. Like we need new stimuli to keep it active. And if the stimuli doesn't change, then our brain becomes hyperactive and has to pull on stimuli that isn't necessarily there, and uh, it can cause all number of problems inside the mind. Yeah, and uh, there's this idea that uh, boredom can't exactly lead to death, but your behavior, which could be risky Mm -hmm. because you're uh, seeking a way out of boredom, could put you in a, a predicament that could lead to your death, certainly. Um, in the Can You Die Boredom article by Kristen Conger, she actually talks about how boredom-prone people are more likely to engage in these high-risk activities. We're talking about compulsive gambling, alcoholism, drug addiction, and eating disorders. And uh, in the article, it also says that men are particularly susceptible, as well as people with brain injuries or 
some psychotic disorders. Now, what's interesting about that is that brings us back to the idea of sloth as a capital sin. Because then, if we look at it, this idea that sloth is boredom and tedium, then yes, it could be a catalyst for other activities that are, quote-unquote, more sinful, but more destructive. Like, you, like I mean, the classic example that comes to mind is like a bored king. Oh, he's bored. What is he going to do with his time? Oh, he's going to eat more because he's right, and now right. he's gluttonous. Or he's going to pursue the pleasures of the flesh and now he's lustful. Or he's going to really get into warfare or uh, the persecution of witches. And this leads to all, all sorts of violence against the people within his uh, country and those without. Yeah, the persecution of witches things is uh, it's a big problem here. Well, no, but <laughs> the kids hang around being bored. I'm talking about in ye- ye- no, I know. I, I've I know. been reading a lot about witchcraft recently. Uh, well, specifically demonology and witchcraft, and the the mindset of those that end up crafting the theories of witchcraft and demonology, which of course are the learned men of the age. And you do have situations where there's, and, and uh, I don't have the data in front of me, so I can't give you the, the guy's name, but you have like this one prince who has all of this time on his hands, and that's how he ends up occupying his time, by really getting into ideas of, of witchcraft theory, and it's extremely harmful to his own people. So, Right, and which is, you know, certainly a marker of obsession, too, yeah. right? And what I think is interesting about this idea of high-risk behavior and sloth mm-hmm. uh, or boredom is that it puts a new skew on it, right? Because normally you think about sloth as sitting around, Mm -hmm. not doing much, uh, torpor. But, I mean, this kind of makes us reframe it as people who are bored easily, who want to be engaged in something, but are just kind of running from one thing to the other. I actually was thinking about this in the context of neophiliacs, which we talked about, people who really just want a new experience and actually contain the genes for this, right? Right. They are hardwired, in a sense, to seek out these new activities. And if you have this in an imbalance, then you have a situation where someone can't stick with something for long. They constantly need some sort of new stimulation to the point where it's like, oh, today I'm a musician. Tomorrow I'm going to be really interested in being an actor. And you never actually pursue these to the level where they you can actually be successful with them. Yeah, well, okay, or so, happy with them. so I have to bring up our friend Dopamine. Oh, yes. You, you knew it was coming. Here it is. It could be that those people have a uh, less dopamine in their system mm-hmm. than others. And let me just go over dopamine again. This is the neurotransmitter. It triggers an emotional response in the brain. And when we experience something like joint excitement, we get this kind of ding-ding in our brains. Uh, so there's a theory that high-risk, boredom-prone people may have naturally lower levels of dopamine. Okay, so they have to reach out for it more. So it's, it's like they have a, a hole in the wineskin of their dopamine. It's, it's possible. And then also people with damage to the frontal cortex experience greater risk-taking urges along with boredom proneness. So mm-hmm. there's a connection there. And the frontal cortex is also where we perceive time, which could be related to the feeling that time is passing so slowly when we're really bored. That flows right into the theories of relativity, where uh, if you're, you're sitting there watching paint dry, Time is going to pass a lot slower than if you're doing something exciting. Wasn't this Einstein's uh, <clears throat> experience after he was talking to oh. Marilyn Monroe or something? Yes, his, his whole deal was if you're staring at a beautiful woman, time speeds up. Which I have on several times mentioned that I think that could somehow be worked into a uh, propulsion system for a spaceship. Like somehow use attractive women in a spaceship observed by elderly scientists. And that will somehow warp our perception of time enough to uh, facilitate faster than light travel. Do we have to be objectified in space too? Well, it's necessary if we're going to. This we're we're talking about the long term survival of the human race. Here. Oh, I think right, I think right. I think women can 
can doll up a little for that. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay, well. We'll get our makeup kits for that one. All right, when we come back from our break, we are going to talk about the upside of sloth. All right, we're back. So, the upside of sloth. I was looking around a little. On, on several occasions, I've, I've referred to the writings of Anton LaVey, not because he's the ultimate authority in uh, the, the sort of virtue of sin dialogue, mm-hmm. but because I tend to find the founder of the Church of Satan uh, very amusing from a cultural perspective. And even he didn't have much to say about sloth and his introduction to the Satanic Bible, where he's, he's generally going through all these sins and talking about how great they are and how they really balance each other out. He just kind of mentions sloth in passing. So how can sloth actually be beneficial if even a hardworking Satanist couldn't find anything really all that great about it? Okay, all right. Well, take a little journey with me. Okay. Okay. I'm going to refer to Wired article by Jonah Lehrer, who's talking about sloth. And he talks about a study conducted by Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert and Matthew A. Killingsworth. And they developed an iPhone app that contacted 2,500 people, uh, volunteers at random intervals, asking them about their current activity and their levels of happiness. What mm-hmm. they found, amazingly, is that people were mind-wandering about 46.9% of the time. Okay, mm. half, wow. half of our lives, right there. Just wandering about with their thoughts. Yes. So that kind of took them down another trail. And so they decided, well, let's look into this whole daydreaming, mind-wandering thing going on. And uh, it turns out that you could actually benefit from daydreaming a good chunk of your time away. And let's call it something like lucid daydreaming. Okay. You, you have to have the ability to be aware that on some level that you're daydreaming while still remaining inward. Okay, so that's very similar to to lucid dreaming, right? Yeah. Same concept. If you're dreaming, you're in slumber, you kind of have to know that that you're doing what you're doing, but also participate in whatever story that you're weaving. So psychology professor Jonathan Schooler found now that there are two types of daydreamers or daydreaming. And this was shown in a study where participants were given a slow section of warm peace to read. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And then timed how long it took before they started thinking about something else. Uh, the first type of daydreaming occurs when people notice that they're daydreaming, but really only when they're prodded by the, one of the researchers do they actually realize it. Like they say, hey, are you daydreaming yet? Yeah, I am. Okay. And then the second type are, again, those sort of lucid daydreamers who can self-report, who are daydreaming, but are really good at saying, boom, I'm going to press the button. I, I realize right now that I'm daydreaming. Those people scored the highest on just a variety of creativity tests because, again, they're able to sort of realize that they're within this dream world, mm-hmm. and yet there are aspects of this dream world that they can actually apply to, I guess you could say, whatever reality is huh. at this point, <laughs> yeah. you know, or to more maybe practical things in their life. Well, as a writer, as someone who who writes not only science but also um, like fiction on the side, I've spent a lot of time daydreaming with that in mind. And I feel like when I set out to, to, I mean, I do some daydreaming that serves no purpose at all as well. But a lot of times I'll I'll intentionally daydream on a various, you know, fantastic setting or plot idea or something that I'm thinking about writing someday or I'm actively writing now or have written in the past and may conceivably rewrite in the future. And so I'll throw the daydreaming into that. And I'll be like, oh, I'm just going to, instead of reading on the train this morning, I'm just going to crank up some music and think about these characters or the setting. And you're bringing an awareness to right, it. Right, I'm bringing right? that awareness to it and it's kind of a it's kind of goal oriented because I'm thinking if I get this right, if I can figure out how the flow of this mm-hmm. works or if something really explosive and creative comes out of it, then 
that's something I can work into a story at some point. Okay, so that's the cognitive gold that is possibly provided to us. Um, you know, considering yeah. that not, again, it's not always gold, but <laughs> uh, you know, silver, bronze. Yeah. Especially if you think about it in the context of really, do we daydream half of our lives, our our waking hours away? Mm-hmm. Because if we're doing that, maybe we should all engage in in this sort of lucid daydreaming. Which is, you know, you don't have to be a Zen master, but it does take some effort. Certainly, meditation is helpful for that because you become aware of your thoughts more easily. I mean, it's, you, know, you could think of it like brainstorming, really, right? You know, there are no bad ideas in brainstorming. Most of the ideas you generate in a brainstorming session for a business or any kind of business setting, you're going to throw most of those away, and maybe you'll get two or three that you can actually run with. So, yeah, yeah, and think about thought experiments. So we've talked about this before. The thought experiments, there is uh, no point to a solution at this point. It is just a scenario that you put out there, and you say, what if? Mm-hmm. And uh, it could be the most ridiculous, most surreal thing. Um, the point is not to get to some sort of logical, like, and this is how you solve it. It's just to let your mind sort of tick through the options. So there you have it. Sloth. It's not as nailed down as some of these other sins, motivations, aspects of uh, the human heart, but it's certainly one that is interesting and certainly one that fills a lot of our lives. All right, I have just one quick listener mail, so let's call the robot over here. All right, this one comes to us from Joel. Joel says, hello, Robert and Julie, big fan of the show. First, I want to thank you for the podcast. You're welcome. Uh, I work a third shift job where I'm alone for about eight hours a night, and podcasts are how I keep myself from losing my mind. Yours and other How Stuff Works podcasts are a part of that. I just wanted to say that another podcast I listen to, Wiretap, a CBC radio show that mixes interviews and phone conversations and sometimes monologues and sketches around a topic, is also doing a series on the seven deadly sins. I've been been holding off on listening to both their and your seven deadly sins series and have been putting together a playlist of the episodes to listen to together. All I need now is their episode on greed and your episode on sloth. Ding, ding, ding. I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to listening to all of them in one go and just wanted to throw the idea out there for any other Stuff to Blow Your Mind listeners who may also listen to podcasts in big chunks of time. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. That's uh, actually really cool. Um, I'd be very interested to get some of your thoughts, too, after you absorb all of those uh, different seven deadly sins from different perspectives. Yeah, and so certainly he's in a situation to discuss this, because I've also worked, uh, I've briefly worked like a factory job, but but I've certainly worked some jobs where there, there's not a lot of thought, and I really had to put those into my brain to keep myself sane with a monotonous task. So uh, I'd be interested to hear his thoughts on sloth and uh, how we uh, avoid this, this tedium in our lives. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, and I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on sloth, how it relates to what you do in your daily life. If you have any thoughts on sloth and video games, that would be very interesting to hear about. Like when, if you go in for a big uh, like five-hour session of Skyrim and your character just buys some stuff and picks some berries and maybe kills a wolf, does that f- really feel like you accomplished anything? Does that feel kind of slothful? I don't know. Uh, but if you have a deep sense of satisfaction, does that can you call that sloth anymore? That's exactly. another question. Yeah, so much of it is in the eye of the beholder. So behold it for us and let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind there. If you like us, go in there, push the like button. And you can also find us on Twitter, where we are Blow the Mind. You can also drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.